millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago War on Serbia. Today is the 28th of July 2014, and on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. As Austro Hungarian Emperor Franz Josef signed the declaration of war against Serbia on this morning 100 years ago, one wonders if he gave much thought as to how his country had arrived at this momentous decision. It had been four weeks and two days since Serbian-linked terrorists had shot and killed the Austrian heir and his wife in Sarajevo. The incumbent emperor had initially greeted the news of that awful event with shock, and had then rationalised it as divine punishment for the late Franz Ferdinand's decision to marry one of lesser birth. The transformation of Josef now saw the Habsburg sovereign stand in favour of war against his state's Balkan neighbour which his Minister for Foreign Affairs had convinced him had to be moved against quickly, since the ultimatum had not been satisfactorily answered and time had passed by. Of course, this Serb reply was now Europe's recommended reading, and many statesmen were upholding it now as not only a masterfully crafted piece of writing, but were also claiming that it in fact satisfied most of Vienna's demands and that with a little tweaking, it would be acceptable to both sides without the need for war. The problem with the presentation by his Minister for Foreign Affairs and his attempts to press the Sovereign towards war was the fact that, as the Chief of Staff had so shockingly made clear, even if Austria declared war now, it would not be able to move against Belgrade until the 12th of August. The central problems of the Habsburg response Though incredibly, they were due largely to the efforts of one man, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Leopold von Berchtold, would become so inflamed over the coming hours and days that it seemed as though Austria's march would set the world ablaze. Miles away in his residence in Germany, 
Kaiser Wilhelm II arose at dawn, blissfully unaware of the drama unfolding in the lands of his ally, or of the significant declaration that was soon to flow out of Franz Josef's ostrich feather quill. How was it possible that these two allied sovereigns could be so far apart in terms of what they knew? The nature of information during the July crisis, and how it was disseminated, has, as we have seen, played a far more important role than has been stressed. So often the picture is given of Wilhelm II eagerly awaiting the news of war against Serbia, and urging on Austria to remove the Slavic stain from the Balkans. While certainly Wilhelm had no love for Serbia, as will become clear in this episode, he was also nothing like the warmongering child that he so often becomes in historical narratives. Instead, it was Germany's statesmen that learned of Austrian intentions to declare war against Serbia on the evening before, while their sovereign had turned in for an early night, convinced that he had been apprised of the relevant information and facts during a meeting earlier that day. It was only after that meeting was winding down, in fact, that news filtered in of Austrian intentions, revolutionarily new in their style, and it was Franz Josef who, the next morning in his residence, signed off on the declaration of war that had been written up for him. Interestingly, it looked curiously similar to the war Austria had launched against Prussia in 1866. Franz Josef had been present for that war too. However, this war, taking place 48 years later, would justifiably receive more attention. Josef's declaration read, To my peoples, it was my fervent wish to consecrate the years which, by the grace of God, still remain to me, to the works of peace, and to protect my peoples from the heavy sacrifices and burdens of war. Providence, in its wisdom, has otherwise decreed. The intrigues of a malevolent opponent compel me, in the defence of the honour of my monarchy, for the protection of its dignity and its position as a power, for the security of its possessions, to grasp the sword after long years of peace. While Josef was declaring war, Wilhelm was reading the replies Serbia made to Austria's ultimatum two days before. Wilhelm was delighted when he read it, still unaware that the die had been cast, and that Josef had already signed off on the war that was due to be declared in mere minutes. The Kaiser noted that the reply was a brilliant achievement in a time limit of only 48 hours. Wilhelm believed that the reply was more than one could have expected, and a great moral success for Vienna. Wilhelm concluded with the revealing remark that all reason for war is gone, and Giesel ought to have stayed quietly in Belgrade. I should never have ordered mobilisation. Wilhelm then took up the pen and attempted to take the place of the British Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey in the previous days. The few reservations made by Serbia on single points can, in my opinion, be well cleared up by negotiation, but capitulation of the most humble type is there proclaimed within, and thereby all reason for war falls to the ground. Although Wilhelm noted that the reply was, a mere scrap of paper, and that, Serbs are Orientals, therefore liars, deceitful, and master hands at temporizing. The Kaiser believed he had the answer to these problems. Austria should carry out a temporary occupation of Belgrade, as security for the enforcement and execution of the promises, and remain there until the demands are actually carried out. Wilhelm said that he was, ready to mediate for peace in Austria. The Kaiser, under no circumstances, wanted a world war. 
He even seems unwilling to allow war between Serbia and Austria to come to pass without stringent limitations to it. The Halt in Belgrade proposal, as Wilhelm's offer is often called, reflected the German Emperor's unfortunate lack of information on the previous day's events, as well as his hopelessly in the dark status of current events. Grey had already proposed a forceful peace agreement whereby Germany would mediate for Vienna, or else, effectively, Grey guaranteed British dissatisfaction and Britain standing on the Franco-Russian side, rather than determinedly neutral as before. Wilhelm's proposal was too little too late for a soon-to-be-at-war Austria. His proposals, though he ordered them transported by courier to improve their speed, would not arrive in Vienna until noon at the earliest, missing the deadline by an hour. It was not necessarily his fault. The picture he had painted when German VIPs had met the afternoon before was one of a controlled situation. But Bethmann Hallwig, Germany's Chancellor, can share a large part of the blame. It has been suspected that Bethmann, alongside his Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Gottlieb von Jagow, orchestrated the late delivery of the Serbian reply to Wilhelm, so that the Kaiser would not be in a position to read its contents until Tuesday morning. Had Wilhelm read it the afternoon before, it is likely that, judging by his reaction here, he may have attempted to enforce roughly the same mediation policy on Vienna that Gray had attempted to propose, though Gray's proposal did not contain the Halt in Belgrade edition. Wilhelm would have many questions to ask when he learned of the Austrian declaration of war that day, and they were likely much the same as historians throughout the ages. On such a crucial point as the Austrian declaration of war, from which virtually all other events in the twilight days of the July crisis spawned, the actions of one man seem an almost fanciful explanation. However, it was one man, Leopold von Berchtold, Austria-Hungary's foreign minister, and the man who had been tracing the course of Austria's response to Serbia since the events of the 28th of June, that had undoubtedly the greatest part to play in the events. It was Berchtold who, against the Chief of Staff Conrad's advice, had decided to declare war on Serbia the following day. He persuaded the now likely senile emperor that such a course was the only way to prevent intervention by foreign powers, and the prospect of a mediation proposal ruining the chance Austria had to make its military mark. It was Berchtold who sent a confusing telegram in French to Serbia announcing the commencement of hostilities, Confusing, because when the Serbian Prime Minister received it, he thought it was a hoax, since no Austrian military measures had accompanied the announcement. This Serbian Prime Minister, Nikola Pesic, even sent an inquiry to St. Petersburg, London and Paris, informing the powers, as his secretary noted, of the strange telegram he had received, and whether to ask whether it was true that Austria had declared war on Serbia. Having botched literally every process that had begun Austria's clumsily contrived arrival at a state of war, Berchtold seemed to have been unable to resist also botching the final, most incredible step of all. Leopold von Berchtold seems to have taken the fait accompli strategy favoured by Germany, that is, the strategy of a quick and sudden war against Serbia before any foreign powers could respond, and upheld it to such a degree that he was willing to sacrifice all logical sense. By declaring war now, Berchtold insisted that he was preventing mediation, and stopping foreign powers from sticking their noses in Vienna's business. And it enabled Austria, Berchtold claimed, to be able to claim a position from which it could ignore all foreign appeals for peace. 
but that was where the advantages ended for his course of action. Not only did it paint Austria in the worst possible light, she had not only struck the first blow, giving foreign governments the moral superiority argument, but she had also done so in the midst of negotiations between foreign governments that had suggested bringing mediation to the dispute. Of course, such mediation was what Berchtold was seeking to avoid. He did not want a commission or conference set up to debate the terms of the ultimatum. That would not help Austria. What was needed was a short and sharp shock to its troublesome neighbour. Only then, Berchtold maintained, to himself, his sovereign and others, could the dual monarchy be secure. Austria, by acting against the wishes even of Conrad, would now have to wait until the 12th of August before it could actually do anything militarily. This was why Conrad had so vehemently protested. He could see no advantage in showing Vienna's hand before she was ready to use it. It was an incredibly inept strategy. A policy so stupid and careless, one would never expect a high-level statesman playing a high-stakes game to make. And yet he did. To the utter incredulity of his ally too, not to mention the glee of his enemies, who Berchtold had, somehow unwittingly, played right into the hands of. By Tuesday the 28th of July, Russia's mobilisation was so advanced that it was nearly impossible to rein in. Furthermore, it was getting harder and harder to cover up, and only British statesmen seemed ignorant of it. Orders had come through to mobilise the entirety of the empire. No longer was the period preparatory to war reserved to merely European Russia. Dispatches were pouring into Vienna and Berlin of these actions, increasing the tensions therein. Warsaw's train station was sending troops all across the length of Russia's border, including the portion it shared with Germany. The German general staff concluded that the Russians were apparently conducting at least a partial mobilisation, and that the period preparatory to war had probably been declared in Russia. Serbia's military attaché in Berlin was able to observe that On the 28th of July, in company with several Serbian officers, I arrived at Warsaw from Berlin. As far as the German frontier, not the slightest indication was seen of military measures. But, immediately after crossing the frontier into Russian Poland, we noticed mobilisation steps being undertaken on a grand scale, which included the assembly of freight cars in several stations, military occupation of the railway stations, massing of troops in several cities, transport of troops, mobilisation signalling. When we arrived at Brest-Litovsk, July 28th, the state of siege had already been proclaimed. In comparison to Serbia's information, Sir George Buchanan, the British ambassador to Russia, summarised his knowledge of Russian actions and effectively epitomised his previous days of coverage, which had blossomed into a comfortable ignorance of any Russian moves to mobilise across their empire, with the mere sentence, Forces of infantry leaving Warsaw for frontier, without noting either the infantry or the frontiers in question. With coverage like this, whether it was apathy, laziness, or the withholding of information by the Russians, or all three, Britain and its statesmen were kept in the dark as to Russia's measures, and had acquired for themselves a picture of the situation that upheld Germany and Austria as the criminals that were about to break the peace. Buchanan attended a meeting at 3pm today to convince Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Sazonov of his ability to mediate between Austria and Russia. Unaware, as all men were, that Austria had already declared war on Serbia hours before. Buchanan, still unaware of the extent of Russian actions, 
was drawn further into the darkness by Sazanov's misleading promise that the order for Russian mobilization against Austria would be given on the day that the Austrian army crossed the Serbian frontier. Buchanan says that he urged him to refrain from any military measures, which might be construed as a challenge by Germany. Somehow unaware that these very measures have been underway for the past three days. When Buchanan was on the way out of Sazanov's office, he ran into Mars Paleolog, France's ambassador to Russia, and he informed Paleolog that, I have just been begging Sazanov not to consent to any military measure, which Germany could call provocative. The German government must be saddled with all the responsibility and all the initiative. English opinion will accept the idea of intervening in the present war only if Germany is indisputably the aggressor. Please talk to Sazanov of that effect. Paleolog, resisting any urges he may have had to bring Buchanan out of his ignorance, responded with a hint of wit, That is exactly what I am always telling him. Of course it was what the Frenchman was always telling Sazanov. The two Entente officials only knew too well that it did them more good than harm to refrain from allowing Buchanan, and thus Grey, into their loop. When Sazanov did finally learn of Austria's declaration of war around 4pm, he sent off a wire to his ambassadors informing them that Russia had partially mobilised key European districts, but chose to keep the unfortunate Buchanan still in the dark about it. Thus, at the same time as Sazanov and his French ally were doing all in their power to keep incriminating information from the British that might alter their opinion of who was to blame for the crisis, Berchtold appeared to be doing everything in his power to not only blacken the name of his country, but also to force his state into a position so hopeless and self-defeating that it is a wonder he wasn't arrested on the spot. Britain's Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, remained utterly behind on current events. Distracted by the goings-on in Ireland, where a ship had just landed to bring arms to Irish nationalists, Grey's attempts to keep up with Europe verged on pathetic. At 4pm, he sent a wire to the ambassador in Berlin, unaware of course that Serbia and Austria had been at war for five hours, urging him to promote the direct exchange of views between Austria and Russia. Furthermore, he sent a positive note to the ambassador that As long as there is a prospect of peaceful mediation taking place, I would suspend every other suggestion. Gray wouldn't actually learn about the declaration of war until 8pm that day, while he would remain in the dark about Russia's mobilisation measures throughout the night. Once again, it seemed, a distracted Britain and a misinformed foreign minister had paralysed the UK. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. At a point when Europe really could have done with a truly neutral voice. But Paris wasn't much better. The streets and newspapers were filled with the news of the seemingly eternal Calo affair, in which the wife of a politician shot and killed a journalist who had accused that politician of adultery. Or perhaps that isn't really what happened, since Madame Calo was acquitted of all charges, and her innocence was the major story in Parisian newspapers, not the Austrian declaration of war the next morning on the 29th. But there was no such ignorance for German Chancellor Bethmann Hallweg to hide in when the Kaiser learned of the declaration around 3pm. Once again, not from his Chancellor. You have got me into a fine mess, came the stinging verdict, directed at Bethmann for his inability to restrain Austria, and for his state now being trapped between either offending Vienna or scaring Russia, all the while appearing as a manipulative enemy in foreign imagination. Thus Bethmann was in a bad mood when he returned to Berlin from the Emperor's residence. Waiting for him on his desk was a confusing report from London that recorded the previous day's conversations and events, courtesy of Lichnowsky, the German ambassador to Britain. Lichnowsky reported to Bethmann that he had attempted to calm Grey down and persuade him that, in the event of any war, remember Grey didn't know about the war until 8pm, Austria had no territorial designs on Serbia. Then, Lichnowsky claimed, he had had a conversation with the Austrian ambassador to Britain, who had told him that Austria was resolved on war, so that Serbia could be flattened and then carved up by Vienna and the Balkan states. Bethmann, of course, was reading this report in the evening, and knew that by this stage Serbia and Austria were at war, meaning that Austria could now attempt to put into practice these plans that its ambassador to Britain was suggesting. Bethmann, likely sick of Austria-Hungary in general at this stage, scribbled a critical note in the margins of Lignowski's report. The ambiguity on the part of Austria is intolerable. To us, they refuse information about their progress and expressly say that Count Hoyos's remarks about a partitioning of Serbia were purely personal. In St. Petersburg, they are lambs without evil intentions and in London their embassy talks of giving away Serbian territory to Albania and Bulgaria. Undoubtedly, Bethmann was feeling regret as his government's signing of the blank cheque for Austria over three weeks before. How could the Chancellor have imagined the extent of Austria's horrendous conduct, that in the space of a month she would botch literally every opportunity for a swift, productive action, 
and top the whole thing off with an unexpected, ill-conceived declaration of war in the midst of the confusion and unpreparedness of her major ally. Not only that, but the Serbian reply was now being read across Europe. Anyone with a sensitive or a moral bone in their body would see that it met virtually all of Vienna's demands, certainly more so than was hoped. Why couldn't foreign powers enable both sides to go further so that Vienna got its satisfaction without offending the sensibilities of Europe? The Serb reply, in other words, now being read at the unfortunate time when news of the declaration was filtering in, practically negated any Austrian grievances, and it made plain that if Vienna really wanted peace then she could have still had it, while the fact that she was now at war with her neighbour proved that she had wanted war in the first place. This, certainly, was the fact foremost in Bethman's mind when he sent a telegram to his ambassador in Vienna at 10.15pm that night, noting that the Serb replied to the ultimatum, "...met the Austrian demands in so considerable a measure that a completely intransigent attitude on the part of Austro-Hungarian government would bring about a gradual revulsion of public opinion all over Europe." Not only had her ally acted with a hideous lack of sense, but Bethman noted that Germany was now placed in the extraordinary position of finding itself exposed to proposals for mediation and conferences from the other cabinets, and if it persists in its previous reserve towards such proposals, the odium of having caused a world war would fall on Germany, even in the eyes of the German people. Bethmann desperately wanted to take the impetus off Germany, so he informed his ambassador that Austria must negotiate with Russia, with a view towards persuading St. Petersburg that... Territorial gains in Serbia are remote from its thoughts and that its military measures are in purely at a temporary occupation of Belgrade and other definite points on Serbian territory in order to force the Serbian government into full compliance with Austrian demands. As soon as Austrian demands are met, evacuation will follow. Bethmann hoped that, if Vienna merely presented its war as one of backing up the fulfilment of its ultimatum, then Russia could not protest, and if she did, then her actions would be blamed for starting the war, not Germany or Austria. Elements of desperation, of course, existed in these hopes of Bethmann's. While it was late in the game to try and reorientate Vienna's policy and aims, and while Bethmann had played his own part in giving Austria Germany's unconditional support, which in itself suggested a risk of war with Serbia, Bethmann and Wilhelm alike had counted on their allies' competence to not risk a conflagration of arms unless it was absolutely necessary. Since the issuing of the blank check, which Bethmann no doubt now wished he had never issued in the first place, Germany had borne witness to its allies stumble pathetically over any plans for swift action and blunder through any possibilities for a decisive satisfaction. Instead, Vienna now combined the worst aspects of Germany's fait accompli policy with its own ineffective touch, with the result that all eyes, when they looked up from reading the conciliatory Serbian reply to Austrian demands, the very same document don't forget that Vienna considered the casus belli, they saw a manipulative power bullying its way past attempts at mediation in a desperate effort to launch an unjust war against a weaker power. It makes it all the more baffling that it was Austria's foreign minister who had orchestrated the strategy. As someone who was meant to be in tune with foreign affairs, how had the Habsburg official reckoned that it was the right course? Notwithstanding the fact that Austria's military wasn't ready to actually fight Serbia, and wouldn't be for a fortnight, Berchtold had just launched a war with all of his state's sins and ambitions nakedly exposed, and had nothing to cover up his modesty but a vague and lame rationalisation, 
that he noted it repeated again and again to himself as events took their course. As Berchtold endured, Wilhelm and Bethwin were concocting their own means by which Germany could rein Vienna in. Wilhelm proposed negotiation between Austria and Serbia, whereby Vienna would give some ground in return for Serbian goodwill. Bethmann, meanwhile, pushed the halt in Belgrade idea, which proposed that Vienna would ensure that Serbia accepted the ultimatum terms not by negotiation, but by force of occupation, and that it would then leave. The fundamental difference between these two proposals was the issue of who would have to bend. Wilhelm's idea would see Austria do some giving and taking for the European interest, while Bethmann's idea would see Nikola Pesic, the Serbian Prime Minister, do the capitulation. It was obvious by now, to Wilhelm at least, that Russia would not agree to Bethmann's strategy, and that they would no longer agree to his own idea of the halt in Belgrade. Not only would the Russians not agree to have their ally humiliated, but Vienna would be seen yet again to be giving nothing in return for the Serb and Russian sacrifice. Bethmann also made the odd decision to keep German mobilization a secret from St. Petersburg, something which Berchtold had specifically requested he not do the day before, in the hope that German measures would scare Sazanov out of his policy and back to reality. One suspects Bethmann did it despite Berchtold when he informed Vienna that a categorical declaration in St. Petersburg would seem today to be premature. Bethman then sent off a telegram to his ambassadors at 9pm today, ordering them to inform the foreign governments that Germany favoured mediation between Austria and Russia. Proposing his halt in Belgrade idea in vague terms, Bethman was unlikely to impress either Gray or Sazanov with this. Russia would see no benefit in hanging Serbia out to dry, even if it meant only a mere occupation of their capital. And Bethman's remarks that the war between Austria and Serbia changes matters not at all painted the Chancellor in the worst light for the concerned Russian foreign minister. Bethmann thus continued the staple German policy of offering nothing to St. Petersburg in return for Russian sacrifices, while at the same time Berlin itself showed no signs to Sazanov that they would meet Russia's military measures would force themselves, or that the period preparatory to war could just as easily be called in Germany. Unaware either of Bethmann's failures as Chancellor or of how rapidly events were moving away from him, Kaiser Wilhelm II made an effort to work around the statesmen of Europe by talking directly with his cousin, Tsar Nicholas II. The so-called Willy Nicky telegrams, discovered in a cache of Russian personal documents as the Russian Revolution tore the country apart in late 1917, became an international sensation and were published as a book in early 1918, before the First World War had even ended. Their tone and style, written in English and appearing intimate and warm, provide a strange window into the minds of the two sovereigns, who in the twilight of the July Crisis were meant to be on different sides, yet professed the same values and desires for their states. The Tsar, a hater of war but a lover of nationalist rhetoric, and the Kaiser, a bluster, a loudmouth, and a dramatist at the best of times, both shared the common desire on the 28th of July 1914 to avoid the horrendous bloodshed that both foresaw should their states engage in war. The relationship between the two cousins, Wilhelm was actually Nicholas's third cousin, 
was strong enough to almost bring Russian military measures to a halt the next day. Almost, but unfortunately not quite. Despite the frantic last-ditch efforts of both sovereigns to overcome the issues of the time and utilise the absolutism and law that their position suggested, both were overcome by the events that their statesmen had either set in motion or had failed to stop earlier. Germany on this day had launched its own period preparatory to war, called the State of Imminent Danger of War, after Germany's Minister of War, Erich von Falkenhayn, had persuaded Bethmann to begin Germany's own measures amidst troubling confirmations of Russian activities. These were the measures that Berchtold wanted Bethmann to tell Sazanov about in order to scare him, but Bethmann remained unwilling, mainly because he had not wanted the measures implemented in the first place and because this German period preparatory to war, though it had been underway in its Russian form since the 26th of July, was a huge bone of contention in Berlin even now, and would continue to be so until the last hours of peace. Wilhelm was ultimately unable to change Nicholas's course, but the letter he wrote today would come closer than any other German diplomatic effort to dissuade the Tsar and thus Russia from its course. Yet even then it wasn't enough. While Bethmann mutated Wilhelm's proposals into an unpalatable offer in a circular telegram at 9pm, French officials in St. Petersburg were collaborating with Sazanov and his allies to ensure that whatever letters were received, they would not alter the Russian determination. Earlier in the day, as news had arrived the declaration of war and Russia then revealed its own partial mobilisation plans, Russia's military attaché to France reported that both France's chief of staff and its minister for war had assured him of France's readiness to support its ally and fulfil its treaty obligations. The French chief of staff, General Joffrey, even demonstrated that he was thinking ahead when he sent the request to Paleologue to endeavour through all possible means to make sure that, if hostilities did break out, the government of St. Petersburg would immediately take the offensive in East Prussia as has been agreed upon in our conventions. Paleolog thus visited Sazanov's office for the second time on this day 100 years ago, this time in the evening. Sazanov's undersecretary, Moritz Schilling, recorded that The French ambassador acquainted the foreign minister with the complete readiness of France to fulfil her obligations as an ally in the case of necessity. As if to show the significance of this declaration by Paleolog, Sazanov would send the following message to the Russian ambassador in Paris, asking Ambassador Izvolsky to pass on Our sincerest gratitude for the declaration which the French ambassador made to me in his government's name, that we may count in full measure on the support of France under the alliance. In the present circumstances, this declaration is of a special value to us. Sazanov had been so encouraged by Paleolog's declaration that on the evening of the 28th, before he sent out this letter of thanks to Izvolsky, he made his way to the Peterhof Palace to talk to the Tsar about approving the mobilisation orders that the Russian chief of staff had drawn up. The Tsar greeted him with his own eagerness and was at this stage attempting to forward his own peace policy proposals to the courts of Europe, a policy which revolved around the idea of an international Hague conference and the utilisation of the monarchs of Europe and their familial ties to defuse the situation. It was in this mood of apprehension that he would receive Wilhelm's letter the next day, but even at this stage Nicholas was feeling an immense pressure for the decision he would have to undertake and approve. 
as someone who had hated war and abhorred human suffering. Nicholas's unfortunate other character trait was that he encouraged nationalistic fervour and appointed buoyant officials that proposed hardline policies in his retinue. This was less so the case with Sazonov, who had begun as an apparently weakly-willed foreign minister and had only come into his own after the Balkan Wars. It was seen more definitely in those that would listen to Sazonov, agree with him and then push his policies into the highest levels of the Russian government. What this created was a strange but ultimately catastrophic mix, whereby Nicholas often became swept up in the tide of his ministers and was then set down by this wave in a position where it was too late to backtrack from. This was what had happened now. The regret and remorse Nicholas felt must have been overwhelming. He knew the results of what war would bring, and while he certainly didn't want to lose any influence in key regions, he also didn't want to unleash needless slaughter upon the world. Placed upon his desk late in the evening were the orders for mobilisation, one of partial and one of general. Having already cruised along its period preparatory to war, implementing either mobilisation procedure would be as simple as fulfilling protocol, but the Tsar knew the implications of them were monumental. Yet he seems to have been persuaded by Sazonov, or he was confused into thinking that mobilisation orders would be drawn up, yet would not take effect without his signature. Whatever it was, Nicholas II's word spurred Paleolog to inform Paris, as if speaking hypothetically, In case of general mobilisation, two officers will be delegated to be sent to my embassy. The French ambassador seems to have been in the loop too, and though there had been a supposedly partial and general mobilisation order, it seems as though from this point on, Russia's military VIPs were acting as though general mobilisation was underway. As the chief of staff, Yanushkevich, noted to the commanders of Russia's military districts, 30 July will be proclaimed as the first day of our general mobilisation. The proclamation will follow by regular telegram. It was clear that the Russian die had been cast. Far from being able to prevent its unleashing, Tsar Nicholas II appeared to have signed off on the final step towards a war that Europe remained so incredibly unaware of and unable for. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market